In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Raycon for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Raycon wireless earbuds start at half the price of other premium audio brands. Raycon's offering 15% off on their products, and here's what you got to do to get it. Just go to buyraycon.com slash gold. A lot of my listeners may well be surprised by today's action in the gold market. Of course, I was surprised, and everybody really should be surprised, by a 3.5% drop in the price of gold in a single day because price drops of that magnitude are rare. I mean, they do happen once in a while, but they don't happen very often, especially on a day like today where you get very weak economic data that would normally be seen as being positive for gold. But instead, gold dropped about $65 an ounce, closed below 1850, about 1848. Silver took an even bigger shellacking, which is normally the case percentage-wise. It was down at $1.76-ish, $25.35 per ounce. And again, this happened against the backdrop of weak economic data in the form of the non-farm payroll report, which was supposed to be weak, but it ended up being even weaker than expected. And of course, this followed the weak ADP number, which I commented about on Wednesday's podcast. The consensus for the official number was for a gain of 50,000 jobs. Now, they ended up revising the November number up. 
right, from 245,000 to 336. But that's looking in the rearview mirror, although even December at this point is the rearview mirror, considering that this is January. But it is closer to where we are now. And instead of getting a gain of 50,000 jobs, we ended up with a decline of 140,000 jobs, which beat even the most pessimistic expectation out there, uh, which was for a loss of 50,000 jobs. So much worse than expected numbers. Now, we did get a hotter than expected average hourly earnings number up 5.1% year over year. Month over month, it was a 0.8% surge. The, the prior month was up 0.3, and the expectation was for just 02 for this month. So literally four times what had been expected. Again, this is an inflationary indicator. If you're looking at wages as part of the the price structure, which they are, wages are the price of labor. And so if you just look at that number, clearly buying labor is more expensive and the price of labor gets factored into the price of other goods and services that require labor to produce. Although one of the factors that was driving this number higher. And so it's really hard to know exactly uh, how much inflation is pushing up wages. And that's if you look at the composition of the 140,000 job losses, a lot of these jobs were lost in the service sector, uh, leisure and hospitality, you know, restaurants, bars to the extent that they're open, hotels, because of the reimposition of the lockdowns. Uh, people are now staying home more because of the, you know, the jump in the COVID cases. And so if you're eliminating a lot of lower paying jobs, then you have more of the higher paying jobs that are still left. And that's going to skew upwards the average hourly income of all the workers. So I don't know, just by looking at the numbers, how much of that increase is because low-wage workers lost their jobs or because other people are being paid more. Although it also makes sense to me that given how lucrative the government is making it not to work for certain lower-wage people where they can get more money not working than working or just getting even close to the same amount of money still makes economic sense not to work, when you factor in the value of all that extra leisure and the fact that you no longer have to incur certain job-related expenses that you're not reimbursed for. Uh, so if an employer has to tempt a worker to leave you know, uh, unemployment benefits, then you're going to have to bribe that worker with higher wages in order to take a job they may not like and give up leisure, which pretty much everybody likes. But that inflationary number is part of why gold went down. And again, that seems counterintuitive. Gold is an inflation hedge. But I have talked about it a lot on this podcast. Gold is an inflation hedge. But a lot of the traders, a lot of the short-term speculators are still trading off of an old playbook. Because the way the playbook reads for the gold trader is that when inflation heats up, the Fed can be expected to fight inflation. And how does the Fed fight an uptick in inflation? Well, it raises interest rates. That's bad for gold. In fact, the break-evens now for both the five and the 10-year tips over treasuries, which is the difference between what the government pays for you to buy a regular 
uh, treasury bond versus one that has inflation protection built into it, the spread is now above 2%. And so this is rising and that's indicating that bond investors correctly anticipate more inflation. In fact, there's going to be a lot more inflation than they're anticipating. Maybe it's just starting to dawn on the markets. And as time goes by, uh, people are going to start to see a lot more inflation. In fact, the yield on the 10-year treasury continued to climb. We closed the day and the week now above 1.1%. It was just uh, a few days ago, a couple days ago, we got above 1%. And now we're 10% higher than that at just over 1.1. The yield on the 30-year is 1.863, inching closer to 2%. And again, the rising rates is what is causing people to be worried about gold. And in fact, look at oil. I mean, another sign of inflation, oil was up $1.84. I don't know if that's the close. I'm looking at the price now, but up $1.84 a barrel as I'm recording this podcast. That's $52.67 per barrel. You know, we just finally got above 50 for the first time uh, since, you know, COVID. And now here we are, uh, you know, getting closer to 53, uh, staring, uh, you know, at the barrel at 60, which I think is coming relatively soon. And normally, too, you would equate rising oil prices and rising gold prices. Long term, obviously, these commodities have a correlation with one another. But again, it's the rising signs of inflation. And again, it's not just oil prices, but other industrial commodities, agricultural prices. I've been talking about that on this podcast. And in fact, most other commodity-based stocks did very well today. It was just the gold and silver stocks, the precious metals mining companies that got clobbered. All of the other companies that are involved in the other commodities that are affected by inflation did very well. But again, it's because the market still expects the Fed to fight inflation, which they perceive as being a negative for gold. Sometime soon, the markets are going to tear up that playbook and realize that the Fed is no longer operating under that playbook because it can't. The Fed can no longer respond to inflation by fighting it. In fact, the only way it can respond to inflation is by creating more of it. And that's because as inflation puts upward pressure on interest rates, the Fed now has to come to the rescue of the bond market by printing up more money to buy more bonds to slow down the rate at which interest rates are rising. Why does the Fed have to do that? Because it has created an economy that's literally a house of cards. It's all built on the foundation of cheap money. And you take that cheap money away and you remove the foundation and then everything built on top of it comes collapsing down. So when inflation causes investors to want to get out of bonds and now bond prices fall and interest rates rise, instead of responding to higher inflation by raising interest rates and tightening up on monetary policy, the Fed does the opposite. The Fed prints even more money to try to slow down uh, the rate of increase of interest rates. So in other words, more inflation is met by even more inflation. The Fed responds to the threat of inflation by creating additional inflation. So this is the most bullish environment you could possibly imagine for the gold market because it indicates an inflationary spiral, right? Where it's not going to end, where the worse inflation gets, 
the more you need to buy gold because the Fed is not going to do anything about it because they put themselves in a predicament where they can't do anything about it. So I do not expect this sell-off in gold or silver uh, to last long. I think the buyers will come in, and I think the buyers will also come in for the mining stocks. Now, if you take a step back, like I know a lot of uh, my clients who are invested with Europe Pacific Capital, either through the separately managed accounts or through the mutual funds, when you look at your accounts today, you will see declines. Uh, But the declines are actually going to mask some of the underlying strength that is taking place outside of the gold and silver stocks. Because all of our strategies now save the emerging markets, but even our value and our dividend payer strategies have pretty healthy allocations to gold stocks. And that has served us well recently, but not today. But if you back out the losses that we had today from the gold stocks, and you just look at the non-gold stocks, you see massive outperformance there relative to the U.S. stock market today. I mean, there are some spectacular gains in a lot of our non-mining stocks today. It's just that the losses in the mining stocks is obscuring those gains because it's all part of the same portfolio. Now, we don't have huge losses. Maybe people will see their accounts down a half a percent or a percent today. But if you just take out all the gold stocks, maybe there would have been a one and a half or two percent gain in the rest of the portfolio which is much better than what happened in the Dow. The Dow was barely positive today, up 55 points. The S&P 500, again, up uh, a little bit more, uh, but up a half a percent. NASDAQ, 1%. That that was the, the, the top performer. And the Russell 2000 was actually down on the day. It, it dropped by a quarter of a percent. So if you look at the non-U.S. stocks, not counting the gold stocks or the silver stocks, those stocks substantially outperformed the U.S. stock market, which was the point I made on my first podcast of the week on Monday about the decoupling. I think that decoupling is happening. We're starting to see a lot of money moving out of the U.S. market into these foreign markets. And even though we had this big drop in the price of gold today on the expectation, the false expectation that the Fed is somehow going to fight this uh, mounting inflation threat, the dollar was barely positive. I mean, the dollar index managed to get its head back above 90. We closed at 90 spot 062, uh, but still a very, very small rise in the dollar relative to other uh, fiat currencies. And you know, I was listening to somebody on television being interviewed about the rising inflation threat, specifically about the break-even spread being above 2% and interest rates rising and whether this might be problematic, you know, whether the Fed might have to start raising rates and should the markets be concerned? Because obviously, if the gold traders are concerned that the Fed is going to fight inflation by raising rates, well, equity investors should be equally as concerned, if not more so, because the same tighter monetary policy is going to have, I think, even a bigger effect on the bubble that is the U.S. stock market than it will on the gold market. But obviously, they're different investors, right? Maybe it's not the same people. And the people who are, you know, in the stock market bubble, you know, they don't see any of these pins and they just keep on buying. But it was interesting in this conversation 
And I don't remember who was being interviewed, but he basically downplayed the threat and said, you know, it's only 2%. And, you know, the Fed is not going to be worried about this because, you know, this is an improvement and seeing the inflation rate improve to 2%. You know, this is not going to cause the Fed uh, to raise rates or anything. I mean, they've been waiting a long time uh, for this type of improvement. And he kept talking about higher inflation and referring to the increase as an improvement, which shows you really how we've done 180 when it comes to inflation, because I'm old enough to remember when an improvement on inflation meant that inflation went down, right? Because that's generally the way you would think about uh, inflation, right? Because it would improve if the rate went lower, right? It, it, if the rate goes higher, no consumer would consider that to be an improvement, right? It's not an improvement if my cost of living is going up at a faster pace. It's an improvement if the pace at which my cost of living is going up slows down. I mean, it's really an improvement if my cost of living goes down. And the more it goes down, the better the improvement, right? I mean, if you went uh, shopping for an automobile and you went to a car dealership and you ask, hey, what's the price of that car? And they go, oh, this is this car is $40,000. And then if you went to the salesman and you said, oh, well, is there any room to improve that price? And if he said, sure, and he came back and said 42000 he gave you a higher price, would you consider that an improvement? Because now you can pay more? No. When you talk about an improvement in the price, you mean a reduction in the price. I mean, maybe it improves it from the perspective of the seller, but not the buyer. And that's what inflation is all about. You're looking at the cost of living of the guy who has to buy stuff. And from that perspective, when the prices go down, they improve. When they go up, they're getting worse. And so inflation is getting worse. It's not getting better. Yet in the Orwellian world that we live in now, uh, a bad thing is, is a good thing. We also got quite a few economic data points that were released yesterday. But to me, the one that's the most significant, of course, nobody else in the mainstream even pays attention to this particular data point. And that is the trade deficit. This is the unified deficit, uh, which includes our deficit in goods and the surplus that we have that offsets that in services. We already got recently the goods deficit, otherwise, or what used to be known as the merchandise trade deficit, and that's at an all-time record high. Our merchandise trade deficits have never been higher than they are right now. Well, the total trade deficit, which was supposed to come out at $66.8 billion, came out at $68.1 billion. So that's a big jump above what was estimated and a big jump from the prior month, which was $63.1 billion. But it's still not a record high. The largest unified trade deficit that we ever had, that record was still set in the first half of 2008 right before the financial crisis and everything came falling apart. That massive deficit was a byproduct of that bubble, of the imbalances of the housing bubble that allowed Americans to live beyond our means by borrowing money, extracting equity from their homes, and then using it to buy all sorts of stuff uh, that was imported. That was part of the manifestation of that bubble. And that was an unsustainable imbalance that blew up. 
Well, the bubble that we are experiencing today dwarfs anything that we experienced back then. And so I'm sure that the trade deficits that this bubble is going to produce are going to eclipse that record. We've already set new all-time records for goods. Within another month or two, I think we're going to take out that record from 08. And in fact, we're going to shatter it and we're going to keep making new records until ultimately the dollar completely implodes. And we don't just have a financial crisis, but something far worse, a U.S. dollar crisis. That's what's coming. In the meantime, the weakening dollar is going to help to drive those deficits even higher because now all of the goods that we need to import are going to be more expensive. And so we're going to need more and more dollars, which the Fed keeps printing, in order to pay for all of those imports. And of course, when it comes to our exports, we'll actually earn fewer in terms of foreign exchange when we convert the other way. So we end up paying more for our imports. We get less foreign exchange for our exports. We work harder uh, and our consumption and our standard of living ends up being reduced. Well, it's a new year, and I can promise you that we're going to have a lot of great podcasts in 2021. There's going to be a lot to talk about. A lot of my listeners are on the go, and probably the best way to listen to the Peter Schiff Show podcast when you're on the go is with your Raycon earbuds. In fact, I've teamed up with Raycon so you can get an extra 15% off on your Raycon order. You can actually buy a spare pair in case your seven-year-old is using your pair the way uh, Preston likes to use mine. Raycon makes great sound accessible to everyone. The wireless earbuds, again, start at half the price of other premium audio brands. And guess what? You know, if you're one of those guys who thinks having white stems dangling from your ears looks ridiculous, you're right. And you don't have to worry about that with Raycons. They come in a range of stylus colors, always look great, feel comfortable for an in-the-ear, more discreet look. And they don't just look great, they sound great. You can take them anywhere you go. They have up to six hours of playtime. They're water and sweat resistant, and they're easy to pair using Bluetooth. Raycon is offering you 15% off on all their products, and here's all you've got to do to get your discount. Just go to buyraycon.com gold. That's it. You'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order, so feel free to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com gold. Buyraycon.com gold. But you know, while I am talking about cars and bubbles, I may as well talk a little bit about Tesla, which is basically both of those things combined. You know, Tesla was up another almost 8% today, all-time record high, closed at over $880 a share. Elon Musk is now the richest person in the world. I mean, maybe he would still be behind Jeff Bezos if he hadn't gotten divorced. Uh, So I think if you take Jeff and his ex-wife and put them together, they may be a little bit bigger uh, than Elon. But, you know, just give it a few more trading days. He'll probably pass the two of them. In fact, if you remember, I mentioned that I thought that the Tesla bubble would likely continue to expand even after its inclusion in the S&P 500, because I thought that would be too clear a sign of a top for somebody to be able to just sell the news of Tesla uh, being included in the the S&P 500. Look, this has been a widowmaker when it comes to people who have shorting it. I think most of the shorts 
have thrown in the towel at this point uh, when it comes to Tesla. I mean, saying that Tesla is overvalued, I mean, I mean, that's no secret. I mean, the way that you want to make money being a short seller is you want to find a stock that nobody knows is overvalued and short that. I mean, everybody knows Tesla's overvalued, but nobody cares, right? It just keeps on going up anyway. So it's not about trying to figure out, you know, when people are going to discover it's overvalued. They've known that for a long time. It's trying to figure out when people are going to start caring about the fact that it's overvalued. And that is a very, very difficult thing to do, if not an impossible thing to do. In fact, if you look at the market cap of Tesla right now, it is basically 40% of the entire market cap of all the car companies in the entire world. 40% one company. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Now, obviously, Tesla doesn't sell 40% of the cars. I mean, not even close. I mean, yes, Tesla dominates the market for all electric cars, right? But that's a tiny market compared to the market 
for, you know, traditional gasoline-powered cars. Now, maybe what the Tesla bulls are anticipating is that in the future, Tesla will dominate the entire auto market the way it now dominates the electric market. That maybe everybody is going to go from uh, driving a gas car to driving an electric car and that 40% of those electric cars are going to be made by Tesla, which is pure fantasy. It's never going to happen. I mean, obviously, as consumers, if they do express a greater preference for electric cars, then all these other companies will compete with Tesla and make them. I mean, I own an all-electric car. I own the Jaguar I-Pace. My wife drives it here in Puerto Rico. So, I mean, it's a great car, competes with Tesla. I have a hybrid, by the way. I got a Panamera hybrid. And one of the reasons that we've got these electric or hybrids is there's no sales tax at all if you buy uh, these types of cars in Puerto Rico. So it is artificially increasing the demand for those vehicles. Whether we would have purchased those vehicles absent those tax breaks, it's hard to say. I mean, probably it wouldn't be economical. But with the advantage of the tax break, there is a huge tax. You buy a luxury car in Puerto Rico, it's like a 30 or 40% tax. So that's a big savings by buying uh, the electric car. But again, we didn't buy a Tesla. In fact, they don't even have a Tesla dealership here in Puerto Rico. So you can't even really buy one or they won't deliver. Rather, I don't think they have dealership, but you can't get a Tesla delivered to Puerto Rico. You can buy it, have it delivered to Florida and then arrange to have it shipped. Uh, But I had no problem uh, getting an electric uh, Jaguar. And now, you know, there's an all electric portion now, too, that you could buy right here from a dealership. But the point is that it is sheer fantasy uh, to believe that Tesla will ever be that large. as far as its percentage of sales and profits for the entire industry. In fact, if you look at Tesla today, I said it's 40% of the total market cap. But if you look at the next 10 largest companies on the list, so Tesla's number one, if you then take the next 10 and you add them all up together, you basically get Tesla's market cap. And, you know, that would include Toyota, which is number two, right? Used to be number one, but now it's number two. But you take Toyota and you add Volkswagen, you add Daimler, you add GM, you add BMW, Hyundai, Ferrari, Volvo, throw in a few more, add them all together, and you get Tesla. Clearly, this thing is a massive bubble And, you know, the problem again with bubbles is the people who are trapped inside the bubbles, the people who really love Tesla, they don't even know it's a bubble. At least most of them. In fact, I was watching a a bright guy uh, who I do have some disagreements with when it comes to Bitcoin, but I was watching him on CNBC, Chamath Palahipataya. Maybe I, I mean, I, I apologize if I pronounce his, his name wrong. I always have a hard time with that one. But I've mentioned him in tweets in the past when he said things that I that I agreed with and I you know gave him kudos for that. But I was listening to him talking about Tesla in particular. Uh, he apparently has a, a sizable position in Tesla. He is a big fan of Elon Musk. And again, I don't want to take anything away from Elon. The guy is clearly uh, a genius uh, in that respect. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Tesla can't be overvalued. But he was having this conversation on CNBC and specifically asked about valuation, right? And, you know, if this could be a bubble. And he just denied it. And he said, look, you know, 
the music is playing, so we've got to dance, right? He came up with that same expression. Hey, I got to dance while the music is playing. And then the the guy interviewing him said, hey, wait a minute. Uh, when that was those words were spoken uh, during the 2008 financial crisis, that's what uh, banks were saying. In fact, specifically, the quote was from Chuck Prince of Citibank. And what he said was, well, as long as the music is playing, you've got to get up and dance. I mean, this is what this guy said, who was the CEO uh, of Citi, right? Well, of course, the music stopped playing and everybody on the dance floor uh, went broke, right? The, the whole financial crisis happened. Those words were spoken by Prince in July of 2007. He's up there on the dance floor because he doesn't want to stop dancing because the music's still playing. Well, that ended very badly for everybody on that dance floor. And it would have been a lot worse had the government not made the mistake of bailing everybody out. So even saying that uh, makes no sense, knowing you know how it all worked out the last time uh, you know somebody was saying that. But Kamath basically said, well, this time it's different, right? Famous last words. He said that was financials, right? That was just paper pushing, right? And so you can have a bubble when people are just pushing paper. But Tesla, well, Tesla is producing real products that people like, right? And so if you're producing a real product as opposed to just pushing paper, well, then it's totally different. Then it's not a bubble. And I thought that was a ridiculous statement to make. I mean, it doesn't matter. You can have a bubble in anything. I mean, there is a price that is too high. And to say that just because the cars that Tesla are making are good cars. And you can argue again how good the cars are or not. Let's just accept the premise that they're making good cars. Uh, that doesn't mean that there is no limit to how much you should pay for the stock, right? There is all sorts of expectations that are built into that price that are impossible to ever be met. And that was the same thing with a lot of the dot-com stocks. A lot of these stocks uh, you know, offered services. They were providing services. It's just that the price that people were willing to pay in 1999, 2000 for the profits that could potentially be made providing these services was ridiculous. It was impossible. And I remember arguing that at the time. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the market collapsed. A lot of these stocks went down 80, 90 percent. A lot of them went down 100 percent because they they ended up going bankrupt. So I thought this was a classic. This time it's different. Uh, kind of a bubble. And and so I tweeted something out at Chamath. And here was my tweet. I'm just going to read out the text of it. I wrote, watching Chamath on CNBC claiming that this time it's different because companies like Tesla are making real things. And as long as a company makes something real, the music will never stop playing the way it did for the financials in 2008. So just close your eyes and keep dancing. And that's basically what he said. I mean, it's almost verbatim and not exactly because, you know, I got to fit it into a little tweet. And probably within a minute. In fact, the guy was still on the air because I put this tweet out while I was watching the interview. He wasn't finished with the interview. Maybe he was on a commercial break and then he quickly uh, composed a reply, right? Which maybe explains the brevity of his reply. But basically it was three words and the first one began with F and the second two were you, Peter. So that's basically it. That's his entire reply to my basically tweeting out what he just spoke. I put down in writing what he just spoke in words, and I just let him read it. And so he, F you, Peter. The interesting thing about that reply to my tweet 
is that it got almost 14,000 likes, <laughs> almost 2,000 retweets, and over 1,000 comments with three words, F you, Peter. That's it. Now, you know, I don't know who's so excited about, you know, you know, flipping me off. I mean, clearly anybody who owns Tesla, right? Anyone who's in that bubble, you know, wants to say that to me, but also Bitcoin, because he is also a big Bitcoin guy. He's caught up in that bubble. And I'm sure there's a lot of Bitcoiners that follow him and they probably follow me. And so the minute he said, F you, Peter, well, that's how they replied as well. And, you know, again, I look at that as another sign of a bubble. Because first of all, when you're in a bubble, right, you have to say and believe all kinds of crazy things, you know, when you're in a bubble. Uh, Because not only do you have to justify an unjustifiably high price of whatever asset happens to be in the bubble, but then you have to justify why the price is going to go even higher. And that's what happens. And you have to do all sorts of mental gymnastics in order to justify it. The interesting thing about it is when you're in the bubble yourself, you don't notice this, right? You can see everybody else's bubble. You just can't see the one that you're inside. And you can't see how ridiculous, how absurd the comments that you're making are. And the problem is, as the price of whatever asset is in a bubble, the people who are saying all the absurd things to defend it Not only do they not see the absurdity of what they're saying, but the higher price convinces them that they are right. And anybody like me who is pointing out the absurdity, well, they've been proven wrong by the market, right? Same thing with Tesla, right? A lot of people now, a lot of Tesla bulls have thrown in the towel and now they're saying buy Tesla. They weren't wrong, right? Concluding that Tesla was overpriced was not wrong. Trying to pick the top by shorting it, that was wrong because it's impossible to do that. I mean, I mentioned on this podcast a few times, I contemplated shorting Tesla, but then again, I always talk myself out of it. The same thing with Bitcoin. I've never once shorted it, even though I think it's overpriced. You know, I don't know when it's going to stop. For a while, I thought that the bubble peaked at 20,000. You know, I knew I could have been wrong, but I thought it looked like it had topped out. Well, once it got above 20,000, I was like, well, I don't know where the new top is. I mean, now it's gone above 40,000. It almost hit 42,000 today. I don't know where it's going to be by the time anybody listens to this podcast. Maybe that was the high. Maybe the high was today. I don't know because 40,000 makes as much sense as 10,000, which makes as much sense as 100,000 or a million. Now, Do I think it's going to go to a million? No, but again, I didn't think it could go to 20,000. But again, the higher it goes, the harder it ultimately becomes. You know, I saw this guy, again, CNBC nonstop coverage of the absurdity of Bitcoin and Tesla, by the way. That's pretty much, you know, that they, they split the day talking about Tesla and Bitcoin. Pretty much just a little noise in between, in between that. But they had a guy on there today talking about Bitcoin. And one of the absurd things he said was that, well, you know, the higher the price of Bitcoin goes, the less risky it becomes to buy it. Why is that? The higher the price, the less the risk. I mean, obviously, the higher the price, the less the upside, you know, and the more the risk, because as the price goes up and up, 
it takes more money to move it higher. Now, sure, right now there's some money coming into it. And again, people keep talking about all this demand, right? All this demand to buy Bitcoin and there's not a lot of supply. And so they think the price will keep going up. That's true until the demand goes away because the only reason that there's demand is because people think the price is gonna go up. That is the sole source of the demand because there's nothing else that you could do with Bitcoin except buy it and hope the price goes up. It's not like another commodity or gold where you can buy it because you need it, because you need to use it for something and there'll always be demand for the end user. There is no end user of Bitcoin. There is only the speculator. And if the speculators want it, well, then there's demand. If they don't want it, then all there is is supply. There's a supply from all the speculators who want to get out. And there's nobody, there's no natural buyer to take the other side of the trade. So that dynamic can reverse very quickly. I used to hear the same arguments with housing. I remember people were saying, oh, there's, you know, during the housing bubble, there's no supply. There's all this demand for houses. And I remember telling people, what do you mean there's no supply? Look around, go outside, look at all those houses, right? They're not on the market now, but imagine if all of a sudden they have for sale signs. All that supply is there, it's just not for sale yet because the owners don't wanna sell. There's a lot of Bitcoin out there. I mean, there's not 21 million of them yet. I'm not sure. I think there's at least 18 million. And of course, Bitcoin is divisible down to a Satoshi. So there's lots of Satoshis out there that people might want to unload. They don't want to unload them now because they think they're going to get rich by holding them. But the market starts to fall and uh, all of a sudden you get a big pickup in selling. That's it. The bottom drops out. That The same thing ultimately is going to happen to Tesla. Now, personally, if I wanted to speculate on one of these bubbles, if you said to me, Peter, you can either buy Bitcoin or Tesla, I'd take Tesla. Because ultimately, I think the downside in Tesla is less than the downside in Bitcoin. And Tesla's beating Bitcoin. Tesla's actually up more than Bitcoin. It's, you know, even though Bitcoin is up so much, Tesla's actually up even more. So for me, you want to get in a bubble, you know, pick that one. But stop comparing Bitcoin to gold. You know, all the Bitcoin guys wanted to rub my nose in the fact that gold was down, you know, 3% today or more. Ha ha, look at gold, you know, compared to Bitcoin. Gold and Bitcoin have nothing in common. You know, a 3% move is very rare in gold to happen in one day. Bitcoin can move 3% in a minute, but no one really cares right now because people are buying the dip, you know, and the market is going up. But Bitcoin has got nothing to do with gold. It's got a lot more in common with Tesla, even though it doesn't have much in common with Tesla either, because at least with Tesla, you can have this false belief that one day Tesla is going to have 40% of the auto market, that their cars are so great that everyone's going to buy Teslas and that's all they're going to drive. I mean, I think that's a crazy bet to make. And again, I don't even think most people care. At this point, it's not about valuation. People are buying Tesla because every day it goes up. Hey, I bought Tesla yesterday and I'm up 8% today. If I buy it again, it'll be up another 7% tomorrow. That's why people are buying it. And because the people who didn't buy it feel like fools or they look like fools because they didn't buy it. And the ones that shorted it don't, don't only look like fools. They've lost a bunch of money on top of looking like a fool because they were short. So people don't even care.
It's just a matter of it's going up, so I'm going to buy it. I don't care that it's overvalued because nobody else cares. And that's the same thing with Bitcoin, except it has even less value than Tesla because it is pure BS. And I'm hearing these guys, you know, Anthony Pompliano, who I think is a really nice guy and I enjoy talking with him, but I listened to him on, on an interview on CNBC and he was like, oh, well, Bitcoin is 10 times as good as gold. 10 times as good as gold? How? What can you do with Bitcoin? Nothing. I mean, is it 10 times as good as copper? Is it 10 times as good as oil? Is it 10 times as good as wheat? It's not 10 times as good as anything. It's not even 10 times as good as any of the other thousands of cryptocurrencies that are out there. That's, this is all imaginary. You know, there was uh, one of the guys that was on CNBC, or I think even Pompiana was saying the same thing, that, well, eventually all the publicly traded companies are going to be buying Bitcoin uh, to have on their balance sheet instead of cash. No, they're not. There's, there's no way. I mean, this guy on CBC, I think the same guy that was saying that the higher the price, the less the risk, was saying that, you know, inflation is 2% now. And, you know, people can't just afford to have cash on their balance sheet and have it lose 2% of its value every year or more. So they're going to have to do something to protect themselves from the risk of losing 2%. And he thinks they're going to do that by buying Bitcoin. I mean, if you're worried about losing 2% in cash, wouldn't you be even more worried about losing even more money in Bitcoin? If you don't think that Bitcoin has more than 2% downside, I mean, you got rocks in your head, right? I mean, Bitcoin could collapse. It can go down 70, 80, 90%. I mean, if you really are worried about inflation and you don't want to own the dollar, I mean, you know, there are other fiat currencies. You can own the Swiss franc. You can own a Singapore dollar, right? You can look at other currencies where the inflation rate is lower. Or if you don't want any inflation at all, you could just hold gold, right? Gold has a lot less downside risk than Bitcoin. In fact, even most Bitcoin bulls will admit that gold has less downside than Bitcoin. So if you're worried about risk of loss, you hedge by buying something that has less downside than what you're worried about. You can't hedge an asset with a riskier asset. <laughs> so this is just impossible. None of this is going to happen, but this is all the absurd things that people have to say in order to justify a bubble. But you know, one of the things I think is interesting, and I tweeted this out because I hear a lot of the Bitcoin guys talking about this. They actually think that Bitcoin is going to upend the entire fiat monetary system, right? It's going to bring it uh, to its knees. We're going to bankrupt the central banks. We're going to force the governments to bow down before Bitcoin, that the governments are now going to need Bitcoin, and they're going to pay the Bitcoin holders any amount of money to get their hands on their precious Bitcoin. Uh, I mean, just some of the most absurd things I've heard saying, and this is what a lot of people believe, which is why they don't want to sell. That's part of the hodl and never sell. It's because you're helping to bring down the system. See, if you sell, you're giving up. So what you have to do is, is hold on to those precious Bitcoin, no matter how expensive they get, and don't sell. Because this is how we're going to bring down the banksters. This is why we're going to collapse the fiat system. We're going to bring down the Fed and the dollar. And Bitcoin is going to liberate everybody, right? And now you hear a lot of Bitcoiners quoting the JP Morgan price forecast, right? JP Morgan came out and said that they thought Bitcoin could hit $146,000 a coin. 
Now, why 146,000 and not 150,000? I have no idea. I mean, why not $146,214.16? I mean, where'd they pull that number, right? I mean, it's crazy, right? But in any event, they come out with that number. And a lot of the people in the Bitcoin community are like, yeah, this is great. You see, JP Morgan says 146,000, right? All of a sudden, Bitcoin hodlers are best buddies with JP Morgan, which if you've been around for a while, you realize that JP Morgan is one of the real boogeymen out there. I mean, JP Morgan represents the establishment, the Fed, the fiat monetary system. I mean, JP Morgan has hated gold publicly for as long as I've been in the business, right? All the people that want to talk to me about, Peter, you know, one of the reasons that we want to buy Bitcoin is because the big banks have been suppressing the price of gold. They manipulate the price of gold to keep it lower. And of course, the leader of that gang of manipulators would be JP Morgan, right? So it seems that, you know, bubbles will make for strange bedfellows that all these Bitcoin guys that are so anti-establishment, anti-fiat money want to jump in bed with JP Morgan and just think it's great that JP Morgan is saying good things about Bitcoin. Well, maybe JP Morgan isn't really saying good things about Bitcoin because they want to help Bitcoin or they love Bitcoin, but they're talking up Bitcoin because they want to talk down gold. It's really their hatred for gold that is driving these positive forecasts for Bitcoin because they're hoping to convince people not to buy gold because after all, Bitcoin is going to be the new gold. So don't buy gold because what the bankers fear is a increase in the price of gold. They don't care what happens to the price of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not a threat to the monetary establishment, to the central banks. Gold is. I mean, if the price of gold were rising right now, the way the price of Bitcoin is, I mean, the whole monetary system would fall apart. But look, Bitcoin was pennies of Bitcoin, and now it's $40,000. Have any of the central bankers lost any of their power? Has anything changed? Have any of the governments had to surrender sovereignty to Bitcoin? No. And it's not going to matter if it's 400000 or $4 million. Nothing is going to change, no matter how high the price of Bitcoin rises. It's the price of gold going up. That's what scares central bankers. That's what scares uh, the JP Morgans. So to me, now that Bitcoin is really soaring, they can try to manipulate the price of gold by talking up Bitcoin as a new gold. After all, the reason that JP Morgan says that Bitcoin could hit 146,000 is because they're saying it can steal demand away from gold. Now, of course, JP Morgan never steers any demand to gold, right? Their job is to convince people not to buy gold. They think people who buy gold are dumb. They're foolish, right? Why would you want to buy gold? Just let us buy, you know, buy stocks, buy bonds, right? Gold is for, for nutcases, right? Whack jobs, right? That's who buys gold. You know, people with, uh, you know, tinfoil on their heads are the ones that are buying gold. Conspiracy theorists, stuff like that. So they already don't even see a need for gold. And of course, what they believe privately, who knows? But publicly, that's kind of, you know, what they're trying to do. Everybody tries to talk down gold uh, because it's a threat to uh, the fiat system that is enriching all these bankers. They're getting rich off the fiat system. So why would they want a return to the gold standard? That's the last thing they want. They want to keep the party going. They don't want gold to rain on the party. They don't want gold to be the canary that scares all the miners out. Uh, They want to continue uh, to milk them. And that's what's going on. But none of the Bitcoiners seem to get the irony of the situation because they think they're 
They're in Bitcoin to bring down the fiat system. But if anything, they're helping to prolong it. They're helping to prop it up to the extent that they're taking any of the demand away from gold. Uh, They are enabling or allowing uh, the governments to continue with the current system. Now, eventually, you know, the price of gold is going to move up and it is going to bring an end to uh, to this system. I do believe we are going to go back on a gold standard, but Bitcoin is not going to bring down anything. I mean, the only thing Bitcoin is going to bring down is going to be the fortunes and the reputations of the people who have invested in it. Now, also, I was watching an interview on CNBC today with Sheila Beyer, who used to be uh, the uh, chair of the FDIC, you know, during the financial crisis. And she apparently wrote an op-ed that I didn't get to read, but she was talking about it uh, during this interview. And she basically was saying that the Fed's corporate credit facilities that were implemented in the aftermath of the beginning of the pandemic, that they were a mistake, right? That they backfired, that they did more harm than good, that they went to companies that didn't need the money. In fact, they went to companies that benefited from the shutdowns. There were a lot of companies like my own company that made more money after COVID than they were making before. And as I said on this podcast, There was nothing stopping me except for my own integrity from filling out an application and getting several hundred thousand dollars worth of PPP money that I would never have to pay back. But I decided not to take it. But a lot of other people in the financial industry, a lot of, you know, money managers, private equity guys, hedge funds, a lot of crypto companies took uh, PPP money because it was available. And so all the things that 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 Sheila Bear was saying with the benefit of hindsight, were the problem. Because she talked about how, you know, these were all well-intentioned programs when they first started. But now, you know, looking back, we see that people took advantage of them and it didn't really work. I did not have to look back to know that, right? I am not the Monday morning quarterback when it comes to understanding the effect that government policy has. I understand that the road to hell are always paved with government good intentions. And I understand moral hazard. And if you go back and you listen to the podcasts that I was putting out in real time, when all this nonsense was first proposed and then passed, exactly what Sheila Byer is now complaining about having happened is exactly what I said was going to happen. I understand that. And so there are a lot of times where I say things, I make forecasts, and it takes a while, but at the end of the day, people realize that I was right. And I think the same thing is going to happen with stuff like Tesla, right? Eventually, the price of that stock is going to come crashing down, and Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin is going to collapse in an even more spectacular manner uh, than the price of, of, of Tesla, And at least, you know, if Musk is smart, and we know he is, he is selling stock, he is raising capital, he will be able to do some good things with all that money. Maybe he can buy up some of these other automobile companies that are a fraction of the market capital of Tesla, and he can use all this money uh, to really build an even stronger company. But I don't think investors who are paying today's prices are going to make money because I think they're overpaying. Regardless of how successful Tesla may ultimately be, I don't think it will be as successful enough to justify the prices that are being paid today. That doesn't mean some fool might not pay an even higher price tomorrow uh, because clearly that's been happening. But this is always the dynamic of every bubble. The difference in Bitcoin is at the end of the day, there'll be nothing left. 
because none of the money uh, that's going into Bitcoin is going into anything productive. It is all a, a zero-sum game. Whatever the winners make is what the losers lose. And the losers are the buyers who never sell. The losers are the holders who think they're so smart. They think they're such geniuses because they bought uh, when it was cheap right, or cheaper than it is now, but they still haven't sold. And the reason they're not selling is because they think they're going to get even richer if they hold on and they're afraid to sell. They're afraid of all the riches that they will miss out on if they sell. But eventually it won't be the fear of missing out. It will be the fear of losing what you have left. The emotions will flip. It'll go from greed, which is the fear of not making money is really greed. And it's going to go from greed to outright fear. I mean, what happens in a bubble is you have a combination of irrationality and greed. And those two come together in a very dangerous marriage. Uh, And the more money people make on paper, the greedier they get and the less rational they become. And then when they eventually find out that they're wrong, they panic. Oh, finally, too, I want to talk about the press conference that I watched this afternoon with President-elect Joe Biden. And of course, you know, Biden and everybody else in the media, you know, they're really going off on, on Donald Trump and they're really going off on all of the protesters uh, who were in Washington, D.C. And, you know, as I mentioned on my last podcast on Wednesday, yes, a lot of what was going on in Washington, D.C. was wrong. I mean, people were breaking and entering into the Capitol. People were trespassing. Uh, The protests went too far. And, yeah, I do think that Donald Trump could have defused the situation sooner and better, Uh, But ultimately, he did condemn violence and law breaking and advise people to uh, listen to the police and to respect authority and law and order. But the interesting thing, it's not just Biden, but you have all these people on the left who are condemning everybody who was in Washington, D.C. and saying these are not protesters. These are looters. These are rioters. uh, These are criminals. This is lawless behavior. They must be held accountable What were they saying again about the people who actually were rioting and looting uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd and all the Black Lives Matter? They were saying, oh, these people are protesting. Oh, they didn't want to call actual looters who were burning down private property and stealing television sets and maybe killing people who were trying to stop them. They were calling those people protesters. Oh, they have a right to protest. Let them protest. Even Kamala uh, Kamala Harris, go back and listen to some of the stuff she was saying about these so-called protesters who were rioting and looting. Right. So again, it is a complete double standard. You have a MAGA hat on and an American flag and you're not a protester, right? There, you're, 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 you're trying to overthrow the country. Uh, you're a looter, you're a rioter, and you need to be in jail, right? So I talked about this double standard before because everybody was saying that what they were witnessing on television in Washington was the biggest disgrace they've ever seen, the darkest day in American history. And wait a minute, it's not even a year ago, going back to George Floyd, the stuff that I was witnessing on television back then was way worse than what I was witnessing in Washington, D.C. Again, do people have a right to protest? Absolutely. Did they take it too far? Yeah, they did, right? But at the end of the day, they didn't take it nearly as far as the Black Lives Matter people. Uh, and you don't have anywhere near the degree of hostility uh, from 
congressional leaders uh, or the media uh, back then as, as as they did now. But the other thing I wanted to talk about, one of the things that Biden particularly uh, addressed, one of the topics that he chose to address, and this shows you, you know, how important this is to him because he didn't really talk much in a way about specifics. Uh, and he was announcing too that he's got more people. He's finished his picks for his cabinet. And rest assured, uh, we've got all the minorities there. We've got you know we've got African Americans. We've got Native Americans. We've got openly uh, homosexual uh, cabinet members, right? Not not the guys that are in the closet, but people who are openly gay, right? So we we we've checked all the boxes as far as all the people who have been. Uh, you know, persecuted or all the victims are, you know, they're, they're, they're there, right? I mean, to me, I don't care what your race is or your gender or your sexual orientation. Just pick the best people for the job. Of course, you know, if Biden's picking the best people for the job, they're going to be terrible people. Let's face it. It doesn't matter what their gender or sexual orientation is. He's going to pick a bunch of socialists. So the, the idea that he's picking the best, I mean, I, I'd rather him just pick a woman than pick the best socialist, right? Or that, you know, because that's really what he's doing, right? Because when he picks the best, he's picking the worst. Uh, but you know what I mean when I'm trying to make the point that that's what should be relative. It should be their competency to do the job. And if the most competent, if they all happen to be white men, well, then that's what they are, right? If, that, if, if, if he really was looking, you know, colorblind, like gender blind, like let me take the best person for the job. And I'm not going to look at anything else, but who do I think is going to do the job best? If they end up being all white men, well, then that's what they end up being, right? If they end up being all black women, that's fine too, right? To say that it, it's better just because we have a mix of, of races and genders, I think that's a bunch of nonsense. The specific policy that he did choose to discuss was the minimum wage and increasing it to $15 an hour. So that is going to be a top priority and even with Joe Manchin, he is not going to put a stop to the $15 minimum wage. I mean, there was some talk today that maybe he was not going to approve the $2,000 checks. Well, I'm sure uh, somebody took him behind the woodshed and got his mind right. I'm pretty sure that at the end of the day, he's not going to be the reason that those $2,000 checks are not put in the mail. So I'm sure uh, we're going to get that. And I also think that Manchin will be on board with a $15 minimum wage. In fact, there are even some Republicans who will be on board with a $15 minimum wage. So the $15 minimum wage is coming for sure. I think we're going to get that early in the Biden presidency, which in and of itself is going to help put more upward pressure on already rising wages, which of course will feed into prices. But the comment that Joe Biden made when he was talking about the $15 minimum wage, he said that every American worker is entitled to earn $15 an hour, right? It's an entitlement. It is a right. If you have a job, you're entitled to be paid $15 an hour. Well, how is that? Right, because when you have a job, right, you are making an exchange with an employer. You are providing an employer with your services, and in exchange, he is providing you with money, right? That's the trade. And both parties need to benefit in order for this contract to be entered into. Obviously, the worker, right, he's, you know, selling his labor. And when you're going to sell your labor, well, you want the highest possible price. 
Now, there could be some other criteria. I mean, you also want benefits maybe or good working conditions. So somebody might be willing to take a job that has a lower price, lower wages, if there are some other benefits to the job that the worker valued more. But you 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 evaluate the entire compensation package, everything about the job, and you take the best opportunity uh, that you that you have. And remember, everybody who accepts a job also has the opportunity to work for themselves. I mean, anybody can work for themselves. I mean, just you know, go outside and start knocking on doors and ask your neighbor if you can mow their lawn. You know, I mean, everybody can be self-employed. Well, I guess if you don't have a, a lawnmower, I mean, you could just go out on the street and wash windows. You know, wash people's windows. You just need a cloth or something. I mean, everybody can work or take out the trash or say, hey, can I, can I, can I, you know, clean out your your garage or whatever. Everybody can be self-employed. Uh, the problem is most people realize that they will make more money working for somebody else than working for themselves. A lot of it is because of a lack of capital, right? As I just said with the lawnmower, you wanna mow somebody's lawn. I mean, sure, you can say, hey, can I mow your lawn with your own lawnmower, right? If somebody has a lawnmower, you can offer to, you know, to use their lawnmower uh, to mow the lawn. But, you know, there are a lot of lawn mowing gardening services where they have the lawnmowers, right? And the, the worker doesn't have the money to buy his own lawnmower. So he works for an employer who can provide him with the lawnmower. And he has a job mowing lawns using the capital of the employer. A lot of people don't have their own capital. And it's the capital that makes you more productive. Your labor productivity, I mean, try mowing a lawn without a lawnmower. I mean, if you were to cut the blades of grass individually because you didn't have a mower, I mean, it's going to take you forever. Right? And you know you can't charge more to mow somebody's lawn because you're mowing it with the scissors and it's going to take you all day. No, he doesn't care. Right? But when you have a lawn mower and you can mow the lawn in a half an hour, then you know you can make more money because you can you can mow more lawn. So it makes makes sense to work for somebody who has capital than to work for yourself with no capital. So all the employees get to decide and pick the best job. But what does the employer gain? The employer gains the productivity of the worker, right? Because I'm paying wages and in exchange for that, somebody is helping me, right? Make money for myself. I'm hiring somebody to add value to my business. How much value are they adding? Well, clearly they need to add more value than what I'm paying in wages, right? Because otherwise it wouldn't be a benefit for me, right? If I have to pay somebody $15 an hour and if, that person is only capable of delivering $10 an hour of productivity to my company, am I gonna hire them for $15 an hour? Of course not. Why would I wanna lose $5 an hour for every hour the person worked? If I'm gonna hire somebody and pay them $15 an hour, they better bring more than $15 an hour worth of productivity you know, to my company. And if they do, well, then I can make a deal, right? So does a $15 minimum wage does that prevent somebody who has $20 an hour or $30 an hour of productivity from getting a job? No, not at all, right? He's still gonna get a job. But what about the guy who only has $10 uh, worth of productivity? He's out of work. He's now legally barred from working. Now, right now, when the minimum wage is $7.50 an hour, a guy who's got $10 worth of value, he can still get a job at $7.50 because there's still $2.50 worth of value that the employer can extract 
by hiring that worker. But if now you raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and it's the same guy with the same productivity, and now instead of making two and a half dollars an hour for every hour I employ this person, I lose $5 an hour. Well, I don't want to be in the business of uh, employing that worker anymore. And that guy is out of work. So when you hear Biden or anybody else say that you are entitled to $15 an hour, regardless of your skills or regardless of what you're doing, what Biden is really saying is that you have to be able to deliver $15 an hour worth of value in order to legally have a job. And if you do not have that much skills, right? If you're a young person, if you don't have that many skills, right? Or much skills and you can't add a lot of value to an employer or you can't add $15 of value, you can't have a job. It is le- it is unlawful for somebody to hire. You cannot sell your wages. See, really what's happening is the government is diminishing the rights of individuals to sell their labor, right? It doesn't really hurt employers. Everybody wants to look at it from the perspective of, oh, you know, uh, the employers, you know, they're hurt because now, you know, they're forced to pay workers more money. No, they're not. They're not forced to pay workers any money. They're not forced to hire anybody, right? You're going to have a lot of people unemployed at $15 an hour that may have been employed at $10 an hour. Where the force is, the people who get impacted by government are the workers, because they are forced into doing something. They now have to sell their labor for $15 an hour. And if they can't find an employer willing to pay them $15 an hour, they can't work. It's illegal for somebody to say, well, how about $10 an hour? Will you hire me at $10 an hour? Even if the employer would say, you know what, at $10 an hour, I think I'd take a shot. You know, $15 an hour is too much. I don't want to pay 15, but yeah, I think we can do a deal at 10. I'm willing to pay you 10. What the minimum law does is makes that illegal. So the worker, even if he wants the job for $10 an hour, he can't take it. Now, obviously, I mean, some politician thinks $10 an hour is too little. Well, if the worker doesn't think so, why shouldn't he be able to take it? I mean, because these workers are a lot smarter than the politicians. They realize the best way to get a $15 an hour job is to take the $10 an hour job and develop on the job training, learn more skills, make yourself more valuable. You know, you can't climb up the job ladder unless you get on the first rung. Most workers are smart enough to know that. They just want to get on the ladder. The idiot politicians want to knock off the first few rungs and make it harder and harder for people to get on the job ladder in the first place. So they can't get their first job. They're not going to get their second job. They're not going to get their third job. So what are they going to do? Uh, Mr. Uh, President-elect Joe Biden, they're going to turn to welfare. They're going to turn to crime, right? They're going to have to make their money illegally because Biden and his buddies are going to make it uh, illegal, right, to earn the money legally, or they're just going to go on welfare, which is fine with Biden because that's just another voter that he can count on uh, come the next election. Because once the government bankrupts you, once they make it so the only way you can survive is by getting a check from the government, then you're bought and paid for. They can count on your vote. Again, the government is great at crippling you and then saying, you see, without me, you couldn't walk, so you better keep voting for me or you're going to lose this government crutch.